see in the lives of his individual children. See, two weeks ago, before we went to Park Hill, we heard how Joseph had sent a load of provisions back to his father Jacob and, and his family from Egypt and a call to come to Egypt to join him there. And his sons got back and they, they said very excitedly to their father, Joseph is alive and he's ruler of all Egypt. Now the Bible tells us that Jacob at first was stunned. He didn't believe it. He couldn't believe the news that they brought him. Of course, it seemed far too good to be true. Then he looked around and he saw the wagons loaded with all the the blessed, priceless goods of Egypt and provisions. I think there were 10 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. 20 donkeys laden with good stuff. And it started to dawn on him, this actually is true. My son Joseph is alive. He really is alive. And I'm going to see him. So he was convinced and he made the long journey. So Jacob and his sons and all their wives and all their children made the long journey through the desert towards Egypt. When they reached this place, place Beersheba, they paused, if you look at verse 1, while Jacob made an offering or offerings to the Lord. If you know your Bible, you'll know that Beersheba was a place that was very important in the life of Jacob and his family. It was very significant in the history of his ancestors. Abraham had called upon the name of the Lord here after offering up Isaac on Mount Moriah. Here at Beersheba, Isaac had been visited by God and the covenant made with Abraham was reiterated in chapter 26. And it also seems that Jacob himself lived at Beersheba when he deceived his father, if you recall, and obtained the, um, deceived the, um, his brother to, to obtain the blessing, the birthright. That happened at Beersheba as well. Because we know that from that place he fled um, to Haran. That's in chapter 28, verse 10. But Beersheba was at the southern, southern extremity of the land of Canaan. And if you look at a map, you can see Beersheba right down there in the south. Once Jacob left Beersheba, traveling south, he would be leaving the land of promise. The land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can imagine the kind of dilemma in Jacob's mind. How can I be sure that God will bless me if I'm leaving the land of promise? And the fact that he was experiencing some doubts about this is revealed in the fact that the Lord gave him a vision. Chapter 46, verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in a vision in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. In this vision, the Lord reiterates, repeats some of the promises that he made to Jacob when he had that famous encounter with the Lord at Bethel, you know, with the ladder going up and the angels coming down and going up. The Lord reassures Jacob not to be afraid to go to Egypt because he will make him a great nation there and he will go with him. Look at verse 4. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now in those days, people often believed that deities and gods were limited by a particular geographical location. So the pagans all around would have believed that their gods were limited to the particular land in which they lived. And their power, their jurisdiction did not extend beyond the boundaries and borders of their land. But the Lord reassures Jacob very strongly, very clearly, that he will be with him just as much in in, Jerusalem. 
in Egypt as he was in Canaan. And he can go on his way with peace of mind knowing that God's blessing is with him. And secondly, secondly, if you look at the end of the text, God promises one day to bring Jacob back to Canaan, the land of promise. I think it's unlikely, given Jacob's great age, he was 130. I think it's really ironic. He says, my years have been few. How many of us are going to live to 130? Perhaps people will live longer in the future. When compared to his ancestors, he hadn't lived that long. But he was an old man. He was decrepit. He was ancient. Creaky old bones. and It's hard enough, isn't it, for any old person, older person, to, to leave a familiar home and travel and go somewhere else. I don't know whether Jacob really believed that the Lord would in person bring him back to that land. Perhaps he did. Perhaps he didn't really understand. But the Lord said to him, Joseph's own, eye, Joseph's own hands will close your eyes in death. When you die, when you, when you pass away into eternity, Joseph, your beloved son, will be with there and he'll close your eyes. He will send you off with his blessing. And I don't think that Jacob could have envisaged Joseph leaving Egypt and coming all the way back to Canaan to do that. Because he, was, you know, he was, had a prominent position in Egypt and he was serving there. And I think Jacob would have realized that this promise to come back to Canaan was not for him himself, but rather for his people, for his descendants, for the nation that was to come from him. Later on, we find out that Jacob's body was taken back and buried in Canaan. You you often find, don't you, sometimes people want to be buried in their home acres. They might have traveled to another country, built a life there, but they want to be returned when they die. Bury my bones in Essex in Great Bursted Cemetery overlooking the Thames I couldn't care less you can bury me wherever you like but it wasn't just a matter of that he had a sort of like nostalgic like desire to be in his homeland this was the promised land that God had given him and it was important an act of faith that he should be brought back there his bones should be brought back there his body and buried with his ancestors in that land that God had promised because he was looking forward to a better country But I think that Jacob probably had some inkling that the Lord meant to bring his family, his nation, back to that land at some unspecified date in the future. So Jacob goes on his way, encouraged by the vision the Lord gave him. And now I want to fast forward right to the end of the story, not quite at the end, verses 28 to 29, which is about the reunion. You'll see why I've done this in a minute. The reunion between Jacob and Joseph. What a joyful reunion this was. This is a moving scene. It should warm our hearts. As we picture Jacob and Joseph embracing each other, weeping 17 years of absence. The son that he thought was dead. And here he is. It's beyond his wildest dreams. And yet the Lord had brought it about. And we can just picture and imagine it. And our hearts should be warmed by the beauty of this very human picture. Eventually, Jacob manages to blurt out the only thing that he can say. He says, now I'm ready to die. Because I've seen for myself that you are still alive. For years, Jacob had been living this kind of very depressing half-life. You read the kind of things he says before. They're all kind of depressing and bleak. And now, finally, he's got a reason to rejoice. The Lord has been good to him. 
Now, I read this, and I was reminded of another reunion between a father and a son. It's mentioned in Scripture. I'm sure you can think what, what I'm envisaging. I don't want to push this too far, but we all know the parable, don't we, of the prodigal son. A beautiful parable. The story of a father and a son who've been separated. They've been living apart for years or for a period of time. And then, at the end, there's this very joyful, beautiful reunion between the two but there are differences between these two accounts this factual reunion between Jacob and Joseph and this this, um, fictional one between the prodigal son and his father even though the outcome is very similar Joseph was a faithful son who had never done anything to deserve I believe never done anything to deserve the hardships and maltreatment that was meted out to him He'd been torn away. Beyond, it wasn't, wasn't his desire to be torn away from his father. It was, was you know, something that had been done to him as a victim. But the prodigal son, he left of his own accord. He could not wait to get out of his father's house. He rebelled against his father. He squandered all his wealth, wild living. And he ended up destitute. And yet the father, when he, when he returns, when he repents, the father welcomes him with open arms. And there's great rejoicing in that house. The fattened calf is killed. He gets put a ring on his finger. As sinners saved by grace, which we all are, if we're Christians, we need to admit that we are not like Joseph. We are not like the righteous son who's been torn away as a, as a victim of the cruelty of others suffering for righteousness we are much more like the prodigal son we are the ones who willfully despise God walk away from the safety of his home and security of his home and yet we are welcomed back as penitent sinners we are welcomed back with open arms with great rejoicing with abundant grace as joyous and as joyful as Jacob and Joseph reunion is it's In a sense, there's no grace involved with that. That's just Joseph and his father, who both love each other, being being reunited. But how much greater, how much is the grace of God magnified when we see that we are rebellious sons and daughters who are welcomed back and given grace? I just put that out there as a thought. Now, I want to point again... I keep hearing this lesson time and time again from the Lord about the sovereignty of God. We we need to hear this, don't we, in this day and age, the sovereignty of God. We need to be encouraged by this. I want to draw attention to the sovereignty of God in the affairs of his people and the affairs of this world. If we cast our minds back over this story, we can see so many instances where God was working using circumstances and human actions and evil actions and sins to orchestrate the outcome for the good of all concerned and to achieve his purposes. I want just to consider this for a moment when we think about this reunion between Jacob and his son. If any of the the permutations had been different, the outcome could have been so different, couldn't it? Imagine on that fateful day when Joseph went out to his brothers, they had killed him and not sold him to the Ishmaelites. Well, that would have been in the end of the story of Joseph. And he would have perished, and that would have been a terrible tragedy. And he certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have ended up in Egypt. 
but he did go to Egypt. But imagine in Egypt, if things had been different, and he, he'd remained a slave or a prisoner, or just a slave in Potiphar's house, and that, that's all he ever was in Egypt. And he, he finished his days doing that. There's no reason why he shouldn't have been. He was a prisoner, and he was a slave before that. He would have passed his life in absolute obscurity. His father would never have seen him again, and he would have gone down to the grave, grieving, ruining that day that he sent Joseph out to the brothers. Why did I do that? My beloved Joseph. His father would would have been none the wiser. And then, of course, Joseph would not have been raised to prominence. He wouldn't have been in a position, if he hadn't interpreted those dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, he wouldn't have been in a position to help the Egyptians and to, to help them help store up grain so they could survive the famine and save the known world from starvation. But this was not God's will. Magnificently, miraculously, wonderfully, the Lord moved in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. We are privileged to witness in this story, through the reading of this story, the wonderful outcome that God orchestrated. All these events all these things to get to his desired outcome what a happy ending we see here we need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God because there is great turmoil in the world around us nations are in uproar I mean it could be a lot worse than it is but there is, there is uncertainty and difficulty people behave like frightened children not knowing where to turn we are reminded in these days that even the basic stability of our society, the foundations upon which it is built, are fragile. And it could all come crashing down so easily. But in the providence of God, life goes on for now. But as the chaos in the world deepens, and as the world turns itself upside down in this chaos and confusion and wickedness and godlessness, let us be people, Christian people, who do not live in fear, Lift up our eyes and trust and rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We all know people who, whatever they say, are living in hopelessness and despair and confusion. We are not to be a people like that. We are to be a people of hope, people who trust in the sovereignty of God. Our God reigns. Our God is not just, he doesn't just have good intentions. He's powerful, all-powerful, omnipotent. And he, what he gets, what he wants is what he gets. What he ordains to happen will happen. And he orchestrates his purposes using human situations and nations and people and individuals and sins. Some, in some way we cannot possibly begin to understand. He orchestrates it all to achieve his purposes and he gets what he wants and he's glorified. And the church in this, in this day and age needs to be what it's always been, but even more so a beacon for hope. And a beacon for people who have hope. And a people who look to the Lord and say, my God is sovereign, my God reigns. And we do not fear what goes on around us. The the ravings of the nations and the foolishness of man and the wickedness of people. We look up and lift up our heads. There was a song many years ago in, I think, the 1970s called, um, forgive me for saying this, The Lunatics Have Taken Over the Asylum. It's the kind of songs people write. Sometimes it feels, sometimes it can feel, 
can feel that somehow God has lost control of the world. I was envisioning the children's party on Friday night. Imagine if the children, don't get any ideas, suddenly took over the party, booted out, it'd be like Animal Farm, wouldn't it? So like, they became the adults and the adults were expelled, the children took over. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? But sometimes we have this idea that somehow the world is like that, that God has lost control of the world, that God is a helpless bystander while people cause, wreak havoc and do terrible things. But rest assured, Christian person, this is not the case. The Lord works out everything for its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster, says Proverbs 16. And he's moving history inexorably towards its ordained conclusion. And human actions, even sinful ones, are used by him to bring about his sovereign purposes. Aren't you glad, aren't you comforted to know that God gets what he wants, that he's fully in control, he hasn't lost control, he'll never lose control. And he'll bring about his purposes in his time, in his way. Just watch and you will see it. The glory of the Lord. But that's true, not just in the affairs of nations, but also in the hearts of individual Christians, the lives of individual people of God. Jacob and Joseph suffered greatly, didn't they? They could not have understood what was happening to them at the time. There's no way that Joseph could have understood, unless he was given a particular revelation. We've got no evidence that he was given that. He wouldn't have known what was going on. And yet, he trusted God, he served God, and God brought about something wonderful. Perhaps Joseph had, we don't know, I'm speculating, perhaps Joseph had times when he he concluded that God had left him and abandoned him. Perhaps Jacob felt hard done by as well and felt that things were so bleak. And yet their happy reunion proved that God was working the whole time. We need to remember as individual Christians that God is not just concerned about these great cosmic things, but he's also concerned about our lives as people too. We're not just pawns, we're beloved children. Whatever you might be suffering, whatever you might be struggling with, hold on, trust God to bring about his purposes. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That was the first part, that was, that was God blessing individuals. Now we're looking at God blessing his chosen people. Now, this is the big list of names in verses 8 to 25. I don't plan to go through this name by name. You'll be pleased to hear. Lists of names in Scripture might not mean much to us, but they are included in the Word of God for a reason. Everything in this book is included for a reason. Every single word. God promised Jacob and his ancestors that he would make him into a great nation. And what we're seeing here with these children, the 70 people that went down to Egypt, we're seeing the metamorphosis of a new nation, the seeds of a new nation going down to Egypt. The Lord had promised Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see an element of this in the life of Joseph, don't we? Joseph had been working tirelessly on behalf of a pagan people, the Egyptians. He'd saved them and their nation, their civilization from hardship starvation because God was with him so God through Joseph had blessed the Egyptians the overspill the the blessing for for the people of God had overspilled and blessed the Egyptians too And then in chapter 47, verse 7, we have this business where where Jacob, the the aged patriarch, blesses Pharaoh. Twice, actually. And I don't think this is just some kind of courteous, customary greeting. 
this old man, this patriarch, to whom God had given his promises, he was giving the most powerful man in the world his own personal blessing. And this is a reminder to us that although God initially chose to work out his purposes for a physical family and a physical nation, there will come a time when his family and nation will be comprised of people from all nations. All those who come to the God of Israel and put their faith in him and in his Messiah who will come, the seed who would come, descendant of Jacob. So I just want to put it out there. There's also a blessing for the nations envisaged here as well, but there's not too much about that in this chapter. But I do want to focus just briefly on the, the blessings God gives to the nascent nation of Israel. Verses 31 to 34. Turn to it in chapter 46. 31 to 34. Joseph briefs his brothers on their impending meeting with Pharaoh. He instructs them to tell Pharaoh quite truthfully and honestly that they are shepherds by a trade. And Joseph knows full well the Egyptians despise, detest shepherds. I don't really know. There are different theories as to why the Egyptians hated shepherds so much of all professions. I can't possibly imagine why. But they did. And Joseph knew that. And he said to them, he didn't say to Pharaoh, to his brothers, well, you ought to hide that fact from Pharaoh. But actually said, be honest. Tell, tell him the truth. You're shepherds. That's what they did. But the benefit of that was that they were allowed to settle in the most fertile, the richest part of the land, the region of Goshen. Look at chapter 47, verses 5 to 6. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come before you, come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. So Pharaoh says, take the best part of the land, the most fertile part, go and live there. Farm your sheep. Herd your flocks. Away from the indigenous Egyptian population. And that's key. I want to put it to you, there there were at least two advantages to this arrangement. Goshen has been described as the mother's womb for Israel. It was not just a place to ride out the famine, which was ravaging the whole world, but it was a place of fertility and abundance. Was that the word you used last time? It was a perfect breeding ground for a new nation. Just before that, they'd been facing starvation in their own land. Starvation's no laughing matter. The new nation, the family, would have been cut off at its infancy. It would have been stillborn. It would have been crushed. There would have been no descendants. But in a very short space of time, the Lord in his providence takes them from that place of starvation. He takes them and puts them in a place of abundance and blesses them. He doesn't just save them, but he blesses them. In verse 27, we read that only 70 people, 66 people, 70 people went down to Egypt. I want you to ponder the fact that it had taken about 215 years for Abraham's family to grow to 70 people. During their stay in Egypt, they would grow rapidly into a nation of two million people, some two million. We don't know exactly how many. And that reminded me of God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. And I think the Israelites did this. It was obvious by the the demographics. Exodus 1 tells us, The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. 
What can we learn from this? Firstly, as I've said already, God always keeps his promises and works out his purposes. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says this. Though the fulfilling of promises is always sure, yet it is often slow. The Bible constantly, consistently asserts and proves that God always brings about the things he has ordained and promised, but always in his own time. It took all that time to, to bring that family up to 70 people, and then they rapidly proliferated. And it's important that I encourage you, Christian brother or sister, to hold on to the promises of Jesus concerning the future and all the promises the Bible makes concerning the age to come, that we do not begin to doubt them because they seem to be slow in coming true, coming to pass. What does Peter say? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Hold on to those promises. Do not begin to doubt. Do not begin to waver because it seems to be slow. The Lord will bring about all these things in his own time. I also want to to make a point about the region of Goshen, the fruitfulness of that land, being God's blessing for his people. Although we should remember that in the Christian life there will be times of dryness and, and privations and difficulty and trial. There will also be times of blessing and times of refreshment in the Christian life. And I'm sure some of you can attest to that in your own lives. God gives these periods... graciously he gives these periods where we can prosper and grow and make progress without he takes you know he restrains the evil a little bit and lets lets us kind of prosper and, and produce and grow both individual christians and churches may enjoy these periods periods of spiritual fruitfulness when great progress can be made and you've perhaps been in a church and you've seen this is this is a really fruitful period where there don't seem to be any kind of divisions or problems that crop up so often in church lives. No heresy or anything like that. It's just a blessed time where the church is growing and a wonderful thing happens. And you might know that in your own Christian life as well. This is a blessed time. I just feel this period has been particularly fruitful for me. We should rejoice in these times. As the Israelites rejoiced in Goshen, we we should use these times wisely and rejoice in them and thank the Lord for them. But let me make this point as well. The people of God are to be a distinct people. The other great advantage to the settlement in Goshen was that it allowed the family of Israel to remain, remain distinct and undefiled by the idolatrous Egyptians. Had they lived among them, there might have been a real danger of them being assimilated. That They might have embraced the pagan practices of that nation. They might have lost their identity as the people of God and forgotten his promises. It's very important that we as Christian people remember that we are also a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who have been promised a better and a lasting country. Like the Hebrews, like the Israelites, we are strangers in the land in which we dwell. I'm not talking about this particular country, I'm talking about this world. Wherever we are in this world, we are not particularly at home. We're not at home, not truly at home. Although we make our home here for a while, we pitch our tent and dwell here. Like Jacob in verse 9, he talks about his pilgrimage. We are pilgrims passing through this world. Just as the Egyptians regarded Hebrew shepherds as detestable, so the unbelieving world regards Christians with suspicion, and in some cases hatred. Rather than being discouraged by this, we should regard it as the normal state of affairs. We're not supposed to be popular with the world. 
Sometimes God does allow us to be, to be popular and enjoy favour with non-believers, but it's not the status quo. It's not the norm. It's not something we should take for granted. We should not expect, we should not desire the approbation and the approval of non-believers. But the good thing about that was that the people, because they were detested by the Egyptians, they were sent away to a separate place where they could prosper and grow. One of the biggest deceptions in the church today, and I want to say this because I'm concerned about this more and more, and not about this church, I'm talking about the church in this land, is this liberal deception that somehow there was no distinction between the church and the world. Uh, I've heard people say as much in those words. We should not make a distinction between us and the world. We're all the same. We're all the children of God. There's no difference between righteous and unrighteous, light and darkness, sinner and non-sinner. I've heard people teach this to other people. And this is a battle we need to face in the church today. I don't think it's a particularly new teaching, but it is prevalent in our liberal society, so-called. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are to love non-Christians. We are to live amongst them. We do not have a ge- geographical Goshen. Andrew and I were talking about this. We don't go and you know, settle in a part of East Anglia and just claim a colony of Christians or New England or wherever. We don't form separate colonies of Christians away from non-believers. The Israelites lived in Goshen away from the Egyptians. We don't. We mingle with them. We go to work with them. We, we go on the bus with them. We shop in the same shops. But we are different from them. We're not better. We're sinners saved by grace, aren't we? We're not looking down on them. We, we realize that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be exactly the same as them. We should love them deeply. Seek to witness to them. But we are worlds apart from non-Christians, spiritually. However nice they may be, and there are some very, very nice non-Christian people, and you know some, some of them in your families, your neighbours, some are lovely, lovely people, humanly speaking. Even a few minutes talking to them will make you realise that you are worlds apart, spiritually. Your values, your, your standards are so different in many ways. Not, not in all ways, perhaps, but when it comes to the most fundamental and important things in your life, you are completely different from them, heading in a different direction altogether. Biblical separation, believers and non-believers, is not something we, we try to attain. It's a fact already. We don't, we don't look different from them, but we are different on the inside. We must be very careful that we do not let ourselves and our churches be influenced by the worldly and sinful practices we see around us. The good thing about the Israelites in Goshen is that they were separate from the, the, the idols of Egypt and the influences of Egypt. It's a very sad thing to see a church become so secular and so worldly that it can no longer be distinguished from the unbelieving world. And dear friends, very sadly there are such churches and there are professing Christians. You talk to them, their mindset is exactly like the unbelieving world. Because actually they do belong to that world. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. James reminds us. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world 
But this shows us, although God's people, we, in a negative way, we do have to protect ourselves from the influence of the world around us. Positively, we have an active role to play in pursuing good. That's why it talks about looking after orphans and widows in their distress. So we do not just separate ourselves from the evil, but rather we pursue the good and go about God's business. And the people of Israel did that in Goshen. They realized that Egypt was not their permanent home, but they did not just sit around idly waiting for God to take them to the promised land. They settled down, they tended their livestock, and they started having babies. It's the most natural thing to do in the world, isn't it? Likewise, we as Christian people, as spiritual Israel, we know, don't we, this present world is not our home. But we do not sit back idly and just wait for God to take us home. We have a job to do. We have to be about the Lord's business. That's why it says here about orphans and widows, doing good, pursuing the ways of God, bringing about his shalom, his peace, his goodness, his healing in this world. And we also want to grow our nation. As the Israelites proliferated and grew so rapidly, we don't do that in the church by procreation, primarily. You can't make babies themselves, don't become Christians just like that. The way we grow our nation is by preaching the gospel, doing evangelism, spreading the word, letting God do his mighty saving work in the hearts of people. That's the business of the church, to build the church, to grow numerically, to bring people in so our nation might grow up spiritual nation now I'm coming to the end in his sovereignty God did not allow his people in Goshen to become too comfortable in their adopted country there was a real danger that the people in that that fertile land could have settled down and said well this is a wonderful place we're staying here we're not going back to Egypt to Canaan sorry promised that later they would be victims of their own success you remember what happened at the beginning of Exodus? They got so large and numerous as a nation that the, Israel, the, the Egyptians found them to be a threat and forced them into servitude and slavery. And that was God's means of ejecting them out of that land at the proper time back to the promised land. When trials and persecutions come in your Christian life, remember it's God's way of showing you this world is not your home and you are not to be too comfortable here. A time is coming when God will take us to that blessed place where we really belong. In the meantime, we put up with trials. Now, let me move very quickly on. Even though Joseph was a ruler, the main ruler of Egypt after Pharaoh, he never, never forgot or disowned his family, did he? And he never disowned his God. The God who'd been with him all those long years. Joseph had no qualms about presenting his roguish collection of brothers and his bedraggled father to Pharaoh. So think about Joseph surrounded by rich and influential people at the court of Pharaoh. And Joseph could have been, you know, embarrassed by by his father, this you know, shabby figure coming in and these these roguish shepherd brothers. He could have been embarrassed and disowned them. You know the story, the Dickens story, Great Expectations, you might have seen the film, it's on every Christmas, where um, the boy Pip grows up and he's become a lawyer in London. He's a country boy, and he's become a fashionable dandy with all these influential friends. And then his, um, basically, his, like his stepfather, his, his brother-in-law, the old blacksmith, comes to London, and Pip is um, embarrassed to be seen with him with his country rustic ways and you know, his uncouth manners and things like that. And Joseph could have been embarrassed and ashamed of his family, but he wasn't. He was only too glad to welcome them and present them before Pharaoh. Don't forget, 
the presence of Joseph's family there, his father and brothers, reminded all the Egyptians of his own humble, humble origins and ethnic background. He wasn't Egyptian, but he didn't mind. Joseph shows great respect for his father, doesn't he? We ought, to, we ought to respect our fathers. Joseph is a model of respect for his father. Whatever kind of father you've had, you should respect your father. But Joseph doesn't just provide, give them loads of food and shunt them off somewhere. He welcomes them, doesn't he? He, he presents them to Pharaoh, the brothers and the father. He ushers them boldly into the presence of the potentate of Egypt. Brings them in and says, this is my father, these are my brothers, proudly. He owns them. And then Pharaoh blesses them and sends them to a place of abundance. The only reason these foreign shepherds can enter Pharaoh's presence is because Joseph is there speaking for them, saying, I know these ones, they're mine, they belong to me, they're my family. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says this, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Miserable wretches are we. We've treated the Lord with contempt and disdain and yet we show mercy and grace and ushered, like Joseph's brothers before Pharaoh, into the presence of God by one who does not disown us as we deserve but is happy to own us, to say these are my people, my brothers. Jesus asserts that we, his people, belong to him. And he doesn't just merely save us, but he also lavishes, lavishes upon us blessing and abundance, just as Joseph did, Pharaoh did with the Israelites. As I bring this word to a, to a conclusion, there's a lot more that could be said. I've just brought out a few things which hopefully will be helpful to you. The question is for us, are we owned by Jesus? Does he know us? Does he claim to know us? Does he usher us into the presence of the Father? On the judgment day, all of us will stand before God and we will be quite defenceless and helpless because we have no righteousness to show of our own. None at all. People will come with all kinds of... People say to me all kinds of things, well, I'll stand there on that day and I'll give God a piece of my mind. On that day, you'll be stricken with terror if you're ungodly. Are not right with God. And on that day, there's one person in the universe that can save you and speak for you and say, these ones belong to me and usher you into the presence of the potentate of the whole universe. And that one is Jesus Christ, our saviour. If you're not a Christian here, I don't know who's, who's a Christian who's not. I know some of you are Christians, I hope. If you're not a Christian, I do urge you to repent and put your trust in this Jesus. Because that's the only way that you can have on the day of judgment Jesus to say this is one of my, one of my brothers that I call my own. It's the only way you're going to go into the throne room. If not, if you're not a Christian and you refuse to be a Christian, you will stand before him on that day utterly helpless. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. You're not one of mine. And it will be your fault because you heard the gospel and you didn't respond to it. But if you are a Christian, I think you have every reason, as I do, to rejoice in the goodness of our God. And I hope this, this short word today, simple as it is, will give you that desire to worship him and praise, praise our God for his mercy, for his grace, for his wisdom, for his omnipotence and his magnificence. 
Our God is a sovereign God. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who speaks. Jesus speaks on our behalf for the Father and says, these are mine. And that's a reason to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this wonderful reunion between Joseph and Jacob all those centuries ago. Thank you that you you cared for those men and you worked out your purposes in their lives. And help us, Lord, as we see the chaos around us to lift up our heads and trust in your great sovereignty and your omnipotence, that you are an all-powerful God. And the Lord, that you win and that the victory, there will be a happy ending for those who believe in you. And one day we'll we'll be ushered into your presence because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. Please help us, Lord, individually to take whatever we can from this passage, Lord, and, and apply it to our lives in this week. Thank you, Lord, for being with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.